Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning. I guess the students didn't think I was talking to them. Good morning. Hey, good. You guys are awake. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Philippians, which has been titled uh, The Book of Joy. And, you know, I, I found myself struggling a little bit this week. You know, last week the, the passage in, in Philippians chapter 3 that, that Pastor Larry shared, um, Paul exhorts, encourages, um, demands, um, so to speak, that, that the Philippians join in imitating him. Uh, be co-imitators of Christ with me. Paul said, follow my example and keep your eyes on these other guys who walk according to the example that you have in us. Keep your eyes on Timothy and Epaphroditus and myself. And then I'm reading, so, so Paul wants me to imitate him, right? Like, like my thoughts, my words, my behaviors, my actions, my decisions, my reasoning should be like Paul's. And then this past week, I'm reading in Acts chapter 20, which is a part where uh, Paul's getting ready to set sail for Jerusalem, <laughs> and he's meeting with these Ephesian elders, elders from the city of Ephesus, for the last time, and he tells them point blank that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, continues to testify, in other words, continues to tell him in every city that he goes to that afflictions and imprisonment await him. Right? That, that afflictions and imprisonment are what await him in Jerusalem. And by the way, I know you're begging me not to go, and I know that's what awaits me, but I'm going. I'm going because I'm convinced that this is what God is calling me to. You know, that just makes me feel like I'm standing on one shore over here, and Paul is standing on another over here, and there is a vast ocean of difference between the way he thinks and the way I think on certain matters. I can almost promise you that if the Holy Spirit was testifying to me that suffering and imprisonment awaited me, that I would take that as a clue that maybe that's not where I should go. You know, I'd probably pull a Jonah uh, and go the exact opposite direction. Now, it's hard to say what any of us would do in any given situation, but I, I just see Paul's reasoning, the way he thinks, and I feel like there's this vast ocean separating the two of us sometimes. But yet he calls me to imitate him and imitate others who live like him. And so the question is, how do I get and if you're anything like me, I'm sure none of you are, but, but if you're anything like me and you find yourself looking at Paul and going, I can't imitate you, right? how, do we, how do we begin even to get from here to there? Well, I believe that that's what we're going to actually discover in our passage today is, is the key component that got Paul to where it is that he stands 
as he writes this letter to the people of Philippi. Uh, that there's, there's some keys in our passage that are going to flash us back to a certain section of Philippians, and it's just hopefully going to open your eyes the way it opened mine this week. Well, well, if you haven't been with us last week or the week before, or even through this series, um, it's okay because the first verse that we're going to look at today is going to bring you up to speed as Paul begins writing again or continues his writing to these people in the church in Philippi. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, you see, the, the people in Philippi, they started out as, as uh, sort of children of Paul's, spiritual children. About 10, 12 to 15 years before Paul writes this letter, he, he made his first trip to Philippi, shared the gospel, and the church was born. And so the birth of the church meant the birth of new believers and children for Paul to teach and encourage. And now 12 to 15 years later, this church they are the brothers and sisters of Christ along with Paul. They're family, people he cares for deeply. So he says that there is brothers and sisters that he loves and long for. And then he says, my joy and crown. Uh, that the Philippians occupy a special place in the mind and the heart of Paul. They bring him joy when he thinks of them and all of their partnership with him in the gospel but he also calls them his crown, right? That they are the evidence of the work that God has done through Paul and in the lives of believers, for which Paul believes that if they remain steadfast and hold on to the hope that they have in Jesus, that they will be part of the crown or the reward that he receives one day when he stands before Christ. So Paul and the Philippians are, are linked together in many different ways. Well, he has an instruction for them next. His joy and his crown, his beloved brothers and sisters. He says this, he says, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Take a second and think about it. When you hear those words, stand firm, what kind of images pop up in your mind? What kind of situation requires someone to stand firm? What necessitates Paul, their leader, their teacher, their spiritual father, to need to tell them to stand firm? You know, as I thought about this, I thought about, I kind of flashed back to this summer and a day where our family was trying to uh, spend the afternoon on Lake Pleasant. Uh, so, so we begin kind of in the heart of Phoenix and we're driving up towards Lake Pleasant and, and pulling a boat. And, and as we get closer and closer to the lake, I just see these dark clouds begin to move over the lake. But we continue on anyway and, and get to the parking lot and just want to kind of watch and see what happens. We've already invested an hour and a half into this. We might as well see what's going to happen. And as we sit there, parked in the parking lot, overlooking the lake, we just see the darkness move 
over the lake, and the wind starts to kick up. And before you know it, the winds have gone from 10 miles an hour to 20, and then I think they skipped the 30s and went straight to the 40s. And I'm pretty sure at some point, based on the amount of gravel that was blowing across the parking lot and the size of the white caps on the water, I mean, the waves on Lake Pleasant were four to five feet high. People's boats were sinking as they were trying to get them on trailers. Um, probably 70, miles an hour, 70 mile an hour winds, monsoon, on the lake. And I just remember my boy, you know, my wife stayed in the car. Um, but, but boys, you know, we have to get out into that storm. <laughs> And we need to get it on video um, so you can put it on Snapchat or your Instagram or, you know, let people know you were there. Um, so we get out and you can barely push your door open to get out. And then as soon as you squeeze out, it slams behind you. But I just remember, uh, and I have video somewhere, um, of my boys and I, and we are leaning like at a 45 degree angle against the wind because anything less than that would push you back. And so we had to adjust ourselves because of the opposition, because of the resistance that we were facing, we had to lean in in order to stand firm, to not be blown back, to not lose our progress. We had to make adjustments for the opposition, for, for the force that was coming against us. And I think that's some of the imagery that Paul is calling here. He, he knows that they face some opposition, some resistance in the culture, um, and he knows that they're in the midst of difficulty and struggle because he experienced it in Philippi as well. And so he encourages them to stand steadfast. And after this general exhortation to stand firm, to be steadfast and, and immovable, he moves into a specific application of this principle. And he does it in beginning in verses 2 and 3. He writes, I entreat, right? I, I implore, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. We're not sure who that is, but, but Paul's talking to somebody else in the community, and he says, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh, so we have Euodia and we have Syntyche and, and we learn from this that there are two women in the church. There are two women that Paul knows. There are two women who have labored side by side together and with Paul and with others for the church and with the church in the city of Philippi. There, there are two people who were once united as co-laborers and who are now divided. And Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. What, what does it mean to agree in the Lord. Like when you have two people on opposite sides of an issue, what does it look like to agree in the Lord? When you have two people who some event or misunderstanding or miscommunication, or maybe it was intentional, a slight, 
When you have two people and you have this thing that's come between them, what does it mean to agree in the Lord? Well, that phrase is actually the key that I told you about earlier that's going to flash us back. And because Paul used the exact same words, right, they were, they were good listeners, right? They did most of their learning through listening, not reading, so they were astute listeners. And as soon as Paul repeats the same phrase here in chapter 4 as he did in chapter 2, they would have immediately flashed back to what he had said in chapter 2, verse 2. And that's where Paul writes uh, to the same church, uh, to the group as a whole, and he says this. He says, complete my joy. Right? Like, this is really important to me. If you could do anything to please me, to make me happy, to bring me joy, it would be this. By being of the same mind. And that's what Paul is saying that's translated in chapter 4. To agree in the Lord means to be of the same mind. Uh, Paul elaborates more. He says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So what does it mean to agree in the Lord? It means to be of the same mind. To be operating from the same mindset or pattern of reasoning. I can't emphasize to you enough that, that this section in chapter 2 is the key to the entire book of Philippians. That, that everything that Paul writes before these verses in chapter 2 has been building up and pointing to this apex, this climax in his argument. And everything that comes after flows out of it and should be seen in light of it. Uh, so when Paul is talking to Euodia and Syntyche about agreeing in the Lord, it's, it's because he's calling them to this mindset. He's reminding them of what he called them to in chapter 2. It's the mindset needed for the common life together in the church. As much for the Philippians as for us. So what does it look like? What is this mindset that brings divided people together? Well, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, uh, in verse 5, uh, he says, Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And when we take all of those verses together, we see that it's a mindset that does nothing. How much? Nothing refuses to do anything that is birthed out of rivalry or conceit. That even has a hint of rivalry. That even has a hint of conceit. Like if the other person is even in your mind in some way that, that makes them a rival or that brings glory to you, that you wouldn't even think about doing that. It's a mindset that in humility counts other people as more significant than yourself. That puts their interests ahead of your own 
because they're more significant. They're a higher priority. It's a mindset. Give me the next one. Yes. Uh, There's a mindset, as I mentioned, that looks not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, we've seen this mindset in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be held onto, a thing to be seized and grasped at all cost. In other words, it's a mindset that doesn't hold tightly to power or authority or position. It's a mindset of someone who in humility takes the form of a servant. Also could be translated a slave, the least, the lowest of all. And it's a mindset that in Christ, in Paul, and in us as well, should cause us to become obedient. Obedient to whatever God asks or requires or leads us into. Obedient not just in the pleasantries, but obedient even to the point of death. And in Jesus' case, a horrible, horrendous death. And so it's this mindset that that Paul is calling Euodia and Syntyche and the rest of the church to. What was the disagreement? I mean, what were these two women in the church fighting over, dividing over, arguing over. If you think I'm going to speculate on what women in the church might fight over, you've got the wrong guy up here. And I'm not even going to encourage you to speculate about what that might look like. Let's focus on what we do know. We know that these women were leaders They were influential. They were well-known. And that this disagreement has been big enough that, that likely everyone in the church is aware of it. So much so that Paul, in a prison, hundreds of miles away, has become aware of it. And chances are the church has been divided into two camps, feeling as though they have to choose sides between these two leaders. But, but let me ask you, like, do you think there's a disagreement that they could be having? That when each one of them said, well, this is the offense that I feel, or this is, this is what she did to me, or this is what's owed to me, this is where I was slighted, Can you think of a disagreement that when put and placed in light of the mindset that Paul advocates here, that one would feel that they had a right to hold on to? You see, when we go through this list and we allow it to bore into the core of our soul, it it begins to reveal things that exist in our hearts 
in our minds. We, we begin to see how far short we fall of the mindset, of the standard that Christ and Paul have called us to in this. And, and for me, it begins to explain how it is that I find myself over here and I see Paul over there. It's because he's allowed this mindset to, to do its work in his heart, in his mind, in every way. Think of the last disagreement you had or the last disagreement you heard of in the church among some people. And then think about if each person would have been operating from this mindset, how would the disagreement have even started? I mean, if you're a servant, if you're the slave, you're the lowest of all. If you're constantly looking out for the interests of others, the other person before yourself, if you're counting every other person in the church as more significant than you, as a higher priority than you, if you have no interest in holding on to power or authority or position or territory or decision-making or personal preferences, how do you ever get offended? Where in this list is room to offend? Then again, where in this list is room to take offense? This mindset is not only the key for understanding Philippians uh, and for seeing everything that Paul says in the letter, but it's the recipe for the mindset of the church that we as, a, as individuals, but more importantly, that we as a whole, we have to get this right. We just have to get this right. So Paul entreats, he implores these two women. <laughs> and then in Paul's style, he goes on and he says, Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. That's weird, Paul. Like, seriously. Disagreement, conflict, division. You just spit that out. Now you rejoice. Because that's what we should be focused on. He just ended with the fact that all of these people involved, that their names are written in the book of life, and that's what they should be focused on. That's what they should be rejoicing in, that, that the mindset that led Christ to the cross in obedience and that has resulted in him being exalted above every name. That that mindset, that that led to that work on his behalf, on our behalf, is what has contributed to our names being written in the book of life. And for that, 
we should rejoice. And then he says something else intriguing. Almost like it's out of the blue. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What are you saying, Paul? I think it goes back to this mindset. I think it goes back to how to handle yourself in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of division. Some translations use the word gentleness for the Greek word that Paul uses here. Gentleness, forbearance, graciousness. Let let your graciousness be known, be apparent to everyone. When I translated this passage a while back, and I was digging into some Greek lexicons and definitions, I saw that one of the ways that this word can be understood is a willingness to yield. A willingness to yield oneself. To to not insist on the rights that are due to you. And I think that's appropriate here. To let your willingness to yield to defer, let that willingness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is near. The Lord is right here. The one who yielded everything on your behalf is in your midst. If you need a reason to be willing to yield, it's that that your Savior, the one who dwells in your midst, whose spirit moves in your community, is the one who yielded everything. Stephen Fowle, in his commentary on Philippians, writes this. He says, The unity of the church is not dependent on the moral perfection of its disciples. Praise the Lord. Because if it depended on our perfection, uh, we could just forget about unity. It doesn't depend on the moral perfection of its disciples. Rather, it depends on the commitment of Jesus' followers to the hard work of confession, the seeking and offering of forgiveness, and the practices of reconciliation. It depends on our commitment. Our commitment. This list has yielding written all over it. Can you confess without yielding? I don't think so. Can you extend forgiveness without yielding? I don't think so. I'm not even sure you can seek forgiveness without yielding yielding, and reconciliation. Reconciliation takes place when two people put something else ahead of their own interests and are willing to yield to one another. You know, I really, really dislike needles. 
just, you know, true confession moment. I know I'm a grown man, but I hate needles. Um, and I used to avoid anything that dealt with a needle at all costs. And of course, you can't. Um, so, you know, you want to go on the Guatemala trip, you're going to need some, you know, a tetanus update and whatever. And, but over time, I learned that actually the anxiety and the anticipation is worse than the needle itself. Most of the time. And in the same way, as much as I dislike, and I can't really convey how much conflict and confrontation are against, like, everything in my nature. Like, I would, I would avoid those at all cost as well, if that were a good option. But I've just learned over time that it's not a good option, that we can't avoid what this mindset calls us to is the seeking of unity and forgiveness and confession and reconciliation with one another. That, that when we allow the elephants to remain in the room for the, for the divisions to exist between us, that we are allowing two of the greatest threats to unity to not only exist but grow and thrive. And those two things are lack of communication and miscommunication, which leave us to speculate about what others are thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. And I've learned that it's a thousand times better to step into the conflict, to step into confronting the elephant in the room and spend the hard work and time doing that than it is to let it grow and, and manifest and get worse. You know, truth is often black and white, but grace in the application of it rarely are. And that's where we need the reasonableness that Paul calls us to. That's where we need the graciousness, the gentleness of Christ as we seek to step into those difficult situations and do the hard work required for reconciliation. You know, Paul gives us one more perspective. And by the way, I, I was supposed to cover more verses than this. So if you came today hoping for a sermon on anxiety and how praying will give you the peace of God instead of anxiety, you're going to have to Google someone else um, to do that. Um, because as, as I was writing this sermon, it was like the train was moving, and then when I went to switch gears and switch topics, it was like, no, 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 this is it. This, this is the core. Like, like, this is where we need to dwell for a minute longer. Um, because there's one more really good reason to do this hard work that Paul calls us to. There's, there's one more really good reason to take the time to allow this mindset that Paul calls us to in chapter 2 to bore down into our core and do the work required. And it's this. You, you see, in, in chapter 3, right after Paul said, be imitators of me, and follow the example of others. Keep, keep your eyes on them. He, he describes some people um, who are, are probably Christians, right? They started off well, 
um, but they got off course. And, and, and he says that, uh, let's see, that they now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. And then I would have expected Paul uh, to, you know, say, but we don't do that. Like, like that's not us. This, this, is, this is how we roll, right? Like, we don't glory in shame. We, we glory in this, and we don't set our minds on those things. We set our minds on these things. But he says something interesting. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, Moffat translates it as, but we, but we are a colony of heaven. Why do we do the hard work? Why do we lay ourselves down, humble ourselves? Because we're a colony of heaven. You see, the Philippians would have latched onto this immediately uh, because Philippi was, was a colony of Rome and they would have been uh, familiar with its constitution. They would have known that, that there was a list of the citizens of the city of Philippi in Rome just as there's a list of the citizens of heaven written in the book of life. And just as Roman citizens, even though they were living in a colony outside of the Roman Empire, even though they weren't in Rome itself, they were expected to represent the interests of Rome, to maintain the dignity of the empire that they represented. And we too are a colony like that, that we're called to represent the interests of the kingdom of God. That our lives are supposed to represent and bring dignity to the kingdom of heaven. That we're a community that is to provide not only a witness to, not only talk about the redemptive purposes of God, not just to proclaim those things and to make them known, but to be a foretaste of that. That when people step into the colony of heaven, that they would see redemption at work. That they would find people committed to the mindset of Christ, who are humble, who put others before themselves, who are willing to do whatever God calls them to, even the hard things in life. So North Bible Church is a colony of heaven. And we should live like it. And the body of Christ in Phoenix is a colony of heaven that Paul calls to be of one mind and one love and operate in full accord. And it's a mindset that should permeate our homes and our families and the way we interact in our small groups and other communities. 
that people may see a people who are citizens of heaven, committed to the principles of the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the way it speaks to our hearts. Uh, I just pray that you would continue to do a work in our hearts and minds. Uh, I pray that we would yield to your spirit, uh, that we allow your spirit to speak, show us the places in our hearts and minds where we need the mind of Christ to bore in, uh, to dig out, uh, to shine light, and to begin new works uh, in our patterns of reasoning, in our patterns of thinking. And uh, we just ask your graciousness and your gentleness with us. God, we thank you for your patience. And uh, we just want to see you glorified in the earth. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Amen. Surrender is not easy. It's not. It means yielding something that's really important to you. Otherwise, your, your flesh would just yield automatically. It's hard work. It's difficult work. It's right here in the heart. Let the Spirit do its work this week. Ask Him where you need to yield. As always, we'll have some folks over here that are willing to pray with you. Gosh, they're more than willing. They'd love to pray with you. Go give them some business. We have our prayer table in the back. You can record your prayer requests back there, and our team will be faithful to start praying over those tomorrow morning. And our prayer team will pray over them throughout the week. God bless you guys. Have a great week.